And I think you said, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. I don't think I said saddest. I think you did. Do you remember what that was about, what I said? Is it Dungeons and Dragons? When I told you <laughs> that I wish I'd played Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid, but I didn't have enough friends. Oh yeah, I did say that was sad. You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh, oh. The glove don't fit. Oh, oh. You got to equip. Oh, oh. I didn't smoke it. Oh, oh. That's all you're going to get. Oh, oh. I'll never admit. Oh, oh. I never took a hit. Oh, oh. The charges won't stick. Cause Monday morning I'm a brand new man. Tuesday catch me if you can. Wednesday night. Welcome to the Docket, episode 71. I'm your podcast co-host and best friend, Michael Spratt. And this is Emily Tammon. I'm those things too. How are you, Emily Tammon? I'm great. Good. Yeah, it's just been a nice, cozy winter day here. Yeah, it's been pretty snowy, which Mm -hmm. uh, is nice when you're up at the cottage, but not so nice when you're driving back from the cottage. That wasn't ideal. When I saw 15 to 20 centimeters of snow forecast for the day you were driving home with the children and the dog, I thought, hmm. That's a shame. Yeah, not the best, but um, not going to complain. Thank you. I, I lived. Survived. You did. You did. You all made it back in one piece. Or uh, five although pieces. I did have one of those moments where I was like wanting to reach back and be like, God help me if I have to pull this car over. <laughs> There's a bunch of the he's touching me going on in the oh. back of the car. Yeah, that's not ideal. No, not ideal at all. But it happens. Um, you got some news. I do have some news. I am. Uh, I have announced that I am intending to run for city council here in Ottawa. Yes, in Capital Ward. Capital Ward. Capital Ward of the Capital. And I, I framed it that way when I said I announced that it's my intention because technically you can't formally be a candidate until May. So uh, in advance of that May date, I've made my announcement and now I'm going on a listening tour. <laughs> a listening tour <laughs> around the neighborhood, which yeah. is... Not really different from what you do most of the time. If you listen to our kids who uh, don't like going anywhere with you because we <laughs> stop to talk to randoms. They do feel that way. In fact, if we're walking down the street and someone is walking towards us, if they get any sense that I've made eye contact with that person, they start pulling me and saying no chatting. Yes, yes. Um, they might have to get used to some chatting. Exactly. But this is also going to be more listening. Yeah, listening. Dialogue. Uh, no, it's good. It's um, I'm excited. There's a lot to do. I have, you know, lots lots and lots of stuff to do over the next couple of months, but I'm feeling good about the time that I have and, um, you know, I'm teaching and just kind of doing my thing. Yeah, I think there's some important stuff that needs to be done at the local level, especially in Ottawa, looking at, you know, transparency and process and how we take on big projects and how I think Ottawa can sort of be seen as like a, even though we're the nation's capital, even though Parliament Hill's right here, it's sort of like a sleepy small town, big town, small town sort of place. And I think that, you know, we need to do better at dealing with how we become a modern town, how we take care of the, you know, some of the marginalized people in our city and how we can be really transparent so that it's not sort of like a small local council sort of thing, but, you know, a really transparent, robust municipal government. Exactly. So that's all part of, 
you know, why I wanted to get involved. And I just think we need to really work on sort of articulating a vision for the city. Like you said, I think sometimes we don't expect enough or we, we don't dream big enough in terms of what our city could be because we sometimes buy into the idea that we're just a small, sleepy town, you know, boring government town. And it's really not true. There's a lot of really exciting stuff happening in Ottawa and the arts and in all kinds of different sectors. Um, and then there's also challenges. Like we can't pretend that we're a small town with small town problems. You know, we do have, we're being hit by the opioid crisis like everywhere else. We have a homelessness problem that is needs a lot of urgent attention. And actually today I um, went to just a really, really interesting panel on, on ending and preventing homelessness that really reinforced for me that we kind of know what we need to do. It's just a question of doing it. So um, I'm excited to just dig into all these um, issues that affect people in our city. Yep, you've been busy with start of pre-campaign campaigns, back to school, flus hit our house uh, with a vengeance this, yeah. uh, this month. We had some sick kids in this last week. I, it's, I don't remember the last time we had a kid homesick from school every single day of the week. Uh, and in one case, one child was home every single day of the week. So, uh, you know, but that's, that's winter. And we got the flu shot and everything. Yep. Um, and we're about to get busier. Because do you remember what I told you like a month or two ago? And I think you said, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. I don't think I said saddest. I think you did. Do you remember what that was about, what I said? Is it Dungeons and Dragons? When I told you (laughs) that I wish I'd played Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid, but I didn't have enough friends. Oh yeah, I did say that was sad. Yeah. I lived in the country. Like, it's hard to get together. It was, like, pre-internet. It was, you know, when it still cost, like, a lot of money to call long distance. Like, you couldn't play over the phone. You know, so you didn't have... Well, now it is. You can twitch it and Skype it and all sorts of stuff it. I don't know. I mean, it isn't, like, an auditory medium. um, So I think you can play over the phone. Fair. You just sit around a table and talk anyway. I mean, why not? Why wouldn't you? So this month, we are correcting that lifelong problem, and I'm crossing something off uh, my bucket list. I mean, when you say we, it almost sounds like you're implying that I'm going to be part of it, and I just like want to be clear. I mean, I'm, I'm I have offered it. you a robust role <laughs> as an NPC character. You can do your own voice. You can choose what you want to do, but you have said no. I mean, I declined that generous offer, but I really look forward to you fulfilling a lifelong dream of playing more Dungeons and Dragons with your grown-up man boyfriends. So that is fantastic. In our house, starting on uh, this week, mm-hmm. there will be a five players. Five players. There will be a cleric, a wizard, a rogue, and two human fighters. It's great. I'm totally and all for it. And me as your host and dungeon master. It's going to be awesome. He's been doing a lot of homework. So that's busy. That's very busy. Other your, than that, I have not done anything. Your leisure activity. You have been because you've been really busy doing a lot of media interviews on important topics. And I think uh, uh, it's it's really great because there have been some of the stuff that we're going to talk about on the podcast today is stuff that's been resonating in the public discourse. And it's always helpful to have your thoughtful comments and your you know um, efforts to kind of give context and help people understand the complexities of the issues. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, I was on the CBC twice talking about um, sex assaults. One time um, earlier this month talking about what was seen as leniency in the sentencing proceedings to people who've been convicted of sex, uh, sex assaults to allow them to you know finish up their term at school or 
to do various rehabilitational activities before they're sentenced. Um, and recently, uh, I've been talking a lot about sort of Me Too and politics and sort of the presumption of innocence and uh, pushing back against some of those uh, people who say that when we're looking at cases like Patrick Brown or Kent Hare or, you know, other political figures or high profile figures that have been called to account for past transgressions, bad behavior, criminality, that we should uh, extend to them the robust uh, presumption of innocence and procedural protections that we have in court. Um, So, you know, Patrick Brown shouldn't have stepped down until, you know, there was an investigation and we should presume these people innocent until proven guilty. And I was saying, no, Um, we're going to talk about that later. So I'll maybe leave it there. But in the past, I've pissed off crowns. In the past, I've pissed off police. And this time I've decided to piss off my fellow defense lawyers who can be rather dogmatic and uh, wrong about these issues. (laughs) Well, and I think that's why you have so much credibility, because you take principled positions on things that are, you know, based on the law and your experience with the justice system. And I think it's, um, you know, as a defense lawyer, it's not uncommon for you to be taking unpopular positions. I think it has not been common for you to be taking a position that's unpopular among a lot of your colleagues. But I think you made a lot of sense. So I'm looking forward to chatting about that. I also <clears throat> wrote a fun piece about how um, Justin Trudeau maybe should be charged under Section 121.1c of the Criminal Code for accepting a benefit from someone who does business with the government, just like Mike Duffy was charged. Yeah, that well, was also uh, another out there piece that I got a little attention. Um, but again, kind of surprising it hasn't been talked about more. This is all about the... Um, the Justin Trudeau's trip to the Aga Khan's private island, which the ethics commissioner found to have violated the Conflict of Interest Act. Um, but she set out very detailed facts. And looking at those facts and looking at the offense um, in Section 121 of the Criminal Code, I think you made a pretty compelling case. And who knows? Maybe there is an investigation. Yeah. I mean, if you're a uh, liberal and you thought that it was completely appropriate that might Mike Duffy get charged for what he does... Um, principle might dictate that you think that there's reasonable and probable grounds to charge Justin Trudeau too, um, if you had principle. Um, but I should say, I should give a shout out to a good friend, um, longtime friend um, of the partner, uh, Peter Sankoff. Who, the podcast. It's called the podcast. What did I say? The partner. <laughs> the partner. Jesus Christ, I'm tired. Um, who first uh, sort of raised that issue back in December. Um, so I decided that I'd steal that and write about it. So I did that too. Thanks, Peter. And uh, speaking of Peter, is that what you were just going to say? Yeah. Okay, you go ahead. Um, Peter's got the second best podcast with Camille Lupchuk in Canada. That's really exciting. Like a legal podcast after ours, of course. I mean, I mean, like in our own charts anyway. Uh, We already teased, I think, uh, earlier that the podcast was coming. This is the um, animal law podcast called Paw and Order. Love the name. Uh, and they've just put out their second episode. And if you're interested in the law, if you're interested in animals, if you're interested in friendly banter between two lawyers, which you probably are if you listen to this podcast, uh, check out Paw and Order with Peter Sankoff and Camille Lepchuk. Camille is the executive director of an organization called Animal Justice. It's a pro-animal podcast. It's, 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 they favor animals and the protection thereof and the extension of rights there too. Um, I'll give another podcast shout out to Sean Robichaud in Toronto uh, for his new podcast. It's called Of Counsel. Uh, and Sean has been interviewing some um, 
skilled, high-profiled, articulate uh, counsel, um, mostly defense counsel so far. I guess that's the low-hanging fruit when you are a defense counsel, as uh, Sean is. Um, but there's been some great interviews with uh, Daniel Robitaille and Michael Lacey and uh, Bree Davis and um, someone else, Gerald Chan. Oh, yeah. Um, Author of Digital Evidence by Emond Publishing. Now that you mention it, but... I, but <laughs> Co-author, so, I should say. So go, uh, go check out Sean's podcast where he talks to uh, some very good lawyers about what we do, because it's all been defense counsel so far. Um, but I think Sean's going to branch out and talk to uh, some other counsel who are sort of leaders in their field, Crown and Civil, and I don't know what other type of lawyers there are. Patent Corporate. lawyers. That should be fascinating. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, check that one out. It is maybe the um, third best legal podcast. But now we've got so Camille's podcast, Paw and Order. We've got Of Counsel, The Docket. We have The Intercept, Craig Forsey's podcast, um, Peter Engelman's podcast, Borderlines. So I mean, like Edelman. Um, yeah. So we're getting up there. It's good. So we'll need to do a definitive ranking of podcasts. Okay. For number two and following. <laughs> right, obviously. But speaking of Gerald Chan and Iman Publishing. Oh, yes, good segue. Um, I, would, I would like to tell you uh, something uh, about this podcast. Please do. Proceed. This episode's brought to you by Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series. This series offers practical and procedural guidance for both defense and crown counsel, anchored by the expertise of general editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. I think you might, you might say something else about it later on. I may. I may, indeed. We'll see. A, a mid-roll ad, if you will. Oh, the lingo. The podcasting lingo. no idea if that's right, but that's <laughs> what we'll call it. Okay. All right. So before we talk about um, Me Too and the presumption of innocence, which is a serious discussion, uh, I'd like to have another serious discussion. And I will play you um, a teaser lead, whatever it's called in the, the industry. Okay. Uh, to set this up. Here we go. I probably had reasons to lash out, to, uh, to do the dirty deed. But Kerry Winter says he is innocent. What's more, he's making an extraordinary accusation against Barry Sherman. The Fifth Estate's Bob McEwen spoke with Winter and put his claim to the test. He works as a construction site supervisor, a far cry from the wealth and power his billionaire cousin Barry Sherman enjoyed. And Kerry Winter is bitter. He cared about one thing, money, making lots of it, and not caring who he destroyed, who he stepped on. I was betrayed. My cousin hurt me, and now I want to hurt him. That is the most innocent man who's ever proclaimed his innocence in the face of innocence. Oh, dear. That man needs a lawyer, or if he already has one, a different lawyer, please. That is uh, Carrie Winter, who is the cousin of uh, Barry Sherman. And this is a a really high-profile case uh, in Toronto. Um, I'm going to recommend that you go and listen to a bunch of back episodes of Canada Land, because Jesse Brown does uh, a few episodes about sort of the unfolding of this case and and how it was leaked to the media and how the police sort of cast it. Because first the police said... Um, that Barry and his wife uh, passed away. It looked like a murder-suicide, sort of anonymous police sources said. Um, And of course, uh, Barry Sherman was a very, very wealthy um, uh, and 
uh, active sort of philanthropist in Toronto. He was involved in the like generic drug trade. He was very wealthy. Um, <laughs> the generic drug trade. It makes it sound like uh, the illegal drug trade, but it was it was a generic board, as far as we know. Well, I think so. Yeah. Um, but he and his wife were found murdered. The police said it was a murder suicide, or sort of the police sources did. Um, and just last week, the police uh, said that no, actually, it was a murder. Yeah, and just. I mean, you did cut out a little step there, and that is to say that the family really pushed back against the characterization as a suspected murder-suicide, hired a private investigator, and on the basis of, I think in particular, the private investigator's work, uh, the police have changed course. And there there are important um, things to talk about there in terms of, you know, people of privilege and how their cases are dealt with as compared with other people. And, I mean, that will lead into our next discussion as well. So um, that clip was Barry's cousin, um, who out of nowhere had, there was an article in the Globe and Mail um, just a couple of days before this sort of CBC interview that he did where he uh, proclaimed his innocence and said that... Spontaneously. Spontaneously, because that doesn't seem like the guiltiest thing in the world. Um, and said that, you know, he had an airtight alibi. He was, you know, uh, coming back from a Narcotics Anonymous meeting and was at home watching uh, Peaky Blinders on Netflix. And so he couldn't have uh, done the dirty deed. As he calls it. I was so shocked. And actually, I should say it was a little unfair what I said before about his lawyer because, um, you know, not everyone listens to their lawyer. But um, I, you're watching it. And even the journalists that are interviewing him are having trouble wrapping their heads around how they possibly have someone on camera talking about how he hated him. Well, yeah, I wanted him dead, but I didn't do it because I was at home watching Peaky Blinders, which no one can, like, he has an airtight alibi that no one can um, attest to. And he just comes across not well. So, I mean, to set it up, not only does he say, you know, I've I've got this addiction issue, um, but... The previous week uh, from from the murder, uh, uh, an Ontario judge dismissed a lawsuit that uh, that the cousin had against Barry, um, claiming that you know some of the family fortune or you know there was some money that should have been coming to him because um, Carrie Winter doesn't have a lot of money it appears, and there might have been some sour grapes there about his cousin's success, but he lost a court case, and there was a $300,000 costs award awarded against him. And then mm-hmm. he comes out of nowhere and does this like Globe and Mail interview saying that I have an alibi, I didn't do it. Not that anyone asked, but I'm just telling you I didn't do it. And then he goes on the fifth estate for the CBC, and you're right. I mean, he says that like he bore a grudge that you know he basically wanted him dead that bitter that he was bitter and the emotion and like anger during this interview is sort of palatable and then he tells this bizarre story about how barry sherman 10 years ago came to him and said carrie i want you to kill my wife and carrie says that he said what you want me to kill her and he's like well no i don't want you to kill her but of course you know people who would do that which doesn't cast him in the very good light if even if that's true and 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 you know your cousin does think that you would be capable of committing murder or no murder and then he takes a lie detector test on tv and fails yeah what i mean 
what it looked like to me, this train wreck of an interview, was almost like someone who had hired the worst PR professional ever, who um, told him that he should get ahead, and I think the PR professional is just in his own brain, but that he should get ahead, that the, the media is going to find out about this cost award against him and about this motive and animus between Carrie and his cousin, Barry Sherman. Carrie and Barry. Um, and so he decided to get ahead of it by basically acknowledging the animus, but putting forward this ridiculous alibi and then also planting this idea that Barry had long wanted Honey dead. Like, it just comes across as so not believable. He comes across as so sketchy. Even the way they film him, he's kind of like in the shadows. And um, really, you should go watch it if you haven't seen it because um, this will be a guy to keep watching, I would expect, as this investigation unfolds. I think so. I think this is a, a case that, you know, we'll follow along and, and um, see what the next steps are. Um, but, uh, Carrie uh, Winter, I'm going to give you a little bit of free advice. Okay. It's the same advice I give to all my clients, basically, when they call me. Shut up. Yeah. Don't say anything. <laughs> and just to be specific, like, normally you're kind of talking about, like, talking to the police. But, but just to be clear... Also not the media, please, anymore. Yeah, because, Carrie, my um, my legal analysis is all of these statements that you've made are going to be admissible against you in court someday. Yeah. Yeah, they are. All right. Oh, so moving from uh, a story of privilege to uh, a story of a number of victims who didn't have that privilege, couldn't hire private investigators, and, you know, years uh, and years later, uh, the case now is only making its way to court. So let's uh, take a listen to this. Toronto police are also working on another high-profile murder investigation. We're learning new details about the life of a Toronto landscaper who police allege is a serial killer. Bruce MacArthur is charged with murdering five men. Police seized more than a dozen planters from homes that hired Bruce MacArthur as a landscaper. So that's all about Bruce MacArthur, who the police in Toronto are now calling a serial killer. And all of these crimes, uh, suspected murders, relate to a number of disappearances in um, Toronto's gay village. Um, and the details, like I'm not, I don't have them all at my fingertips, but a number of disappearances over a course of a number of years and again, I'll commend everyone to go and listen to um, an episode of Canada Land that aired rather recently. Justin Ling, um, a great uh, reporter um, who had been following um, the case for a number of years, talked to Jesse Brown about it just before um, Bruce MacArthur's arrest, talking about how friends of of some of these men had you know been lobbying the police and postering um photographs around around toronto for a number of years um to try to raise awareness and the police in toronto seemed um, very reluctant to say that you know all of these disappearances were connected or that there was a serial killer or that men should be careful um and then and then just after that episode aired this arrest was made. Bruce MacArthur was arrested, and now he's been linked to a number of uh, suspected homicides. It's a really crazy story, and I mean, I think it's really important not to lose sight of that piece of it. I mean, we'll see as the matter move through, moves through the courts, and we get um, you know some more detail about the nature of whatever police investigation did or didn't go on over the years. It it is clear. I mean, I recall 
in the past years, um, reading media reports of people in the community calling for the police to um, ramp up their investigation, to warn people, to acknowledge the possibility that the disappearances were linked and that there was a serial killer. And it appears that the police was um, reluctant to do so or didn't do that. And I mean, at the same time, it's clear by the circumstances of Bruce MacArthur's arrest that um, he was under surveillance by police. So there was obviously an active investigation happened, happening because we know that at the time of his arrest, he was seen entering his residence uh, with a man. Um, police... and, and when the police went into the house, they, they went into the house because they saw him entering with, That's right. uh, with another man. And they found that man tied up to his bed. So this is... Like a law and order, the opening, the opening sort of montage of law and order, where the police sort of make an arrest under these bizarre circumstances. Yeah, and so you know, as details are unfolding, you know, the little we know about this guy are you know that he was a landscaper, that he was a part-time mall Santa, which, uh, as a mother of children, mind you, we haven't been to see a Santa in many years, but um, yeah, just really. Troubling, And I, I really do hope that there will be a kind of accounting of, of what measures were taken and when. I mean, you don't have to look further than the Robert Picton case in British Columbia, where um, sex workers were disappearing at an alarming rate. And, you know, lo and behold, there was a serial killer or working the streets. Let's go back even farther. The Scarborough rapist in Toronto, which, of course, turned out to be Paul Bernardo. And the police actually were found um, negligent. Fen- found negligent in not warning people. Uh, about sort of that pattern of behavior. So th- there can be legitimate questions raised there. Yeah, and I mean, again, we don't know. We don't know what the police were doing or, you know, there was obviously an active investigation into Bruce MacArthur. We don't know, um, you know a lot of the circumstances of that and we probably won't for quite some time. But um, it's just such a crazy, shocking story and it's going to continue to unfold over many months. And I mean, it unraveled fast. It went from this arrest and he was arrested for two murders to the police checking every site that he had been a landscaper on and finding human remains in in sort of potting planters. planters that people had installed. So, I mean, I think this is a case to watch. And I mean, there's already some interesting legal issues that, uh, that come up. Um, I mean, if you're looking at sort of similar fact issues, how much of one investigation or one murder can be used to prove the next. And I mean, I'm already thinking... How prejudicial is it that the police arrest him while someone's tied up on his bed? That looks really bad. And I mean, I don't know what use can be made of that in court. But, you know, you can already see some of these applications that the defense may be bringing to try to limit some prejudice here. Well, and also dating profiles on websites trolling for certain types of sexual encounters um, that, that seems like in some cases had elements of violence to them. So all of that, there will be some digital evidence issues probably about the admissibility of, um, some of those profiles and how they're going to be linked to him. And, and then again, the question of, are they unduly prejudicial? So really, I think going to be an interesting case to follow. I think so too. Um, we're in agreement then. It's of course going to unfold over a long time. And I think that we can't discount how, you know, uh, traumatic that this case um, and sensitive this case is going to be um, for, you know, the gay community in Toronto and people who, a community who has been persecuted and marginalized for a long time. and By the police in, in many cases. So, I mean, I, I, I hope that it's something that the media de- deals with delicately 
And I mean, already when you look at sort of how this case is reported, um, I can see why it's reported this way. You know, the normal guy, mall Santa, everyone said he was a good guy. His workers said that he was fun. He, you know, all his Facebook posts were completely normal. It's the last guy anyone would ever expect this to happen or would be charged with something like this. And I mean, that's already sort of differently than how we see sort of other types of crimes being covered. And I hope that, you know, the media covers this in sort of a sensitive and respectful way. That's right. There's already been some criticism about the images that they choose to, um, you know, portray of him where he's so smiling and he looks so normal. And um, you, you know, these these things matter. And especially to a community that feels like they were ignored, that the kind of positive normal attributes of this person are being highlighted. And in fact, contrast that just quickly with um, the case of what's that Colton Bushy and also the case of Tina Fontaine who um, was murdered and who you know the Globe and Mail got a lot of slack this week because they had a headline you know uh, toxicologist says Tina Fontaine had drugs and alcohol in her system you know yeah the drug was marijuana yeah exactly and she was killed so yeah I mean I wonder if we're going to hear about you know Honey Sherman and Barry Sherman's toxicology reports and if they had some wine and and things yeah, like that. Exactly. We've, we've seen it in the Colton Bushy case, which is, of course, a case that we should talk about. And it's a case that we shouldn't call the Colton Bushy case because, of That's course, it. Colton Bushy was the deceased young Aboriginal man who was murdered. Um, and, you know, I think that there is definitely a, sort of an area where we can discuss about how marginalized groups uh, and communities are covered in the media, especially when they're the victims, clearly. Yeah. And I mean, that one's a tricky one because I do find, you know, I've seen in the past other people criticizing the media for always using the accused name, um, uh, you know, that or like with school shootings and stuff, right? Like they say, stop saying the guy's name because he wanted attention and he got attention. You should be focusing on the people that he harmed, right? So it's tricky, but it does seem, you know, like Tina Fontaine and Colton Bushy were both victims uh, or they're alleged victims of the people that are accused of killing them. Um, And they happen to be indigenous and, you know, lo and behold, their names get talked about. It's like, anyway, it's... We'll leave it to Jesse Brown because how the media covers stuff is kind of more Canada lands uh, jurisdiction. But, um, you know, these are things that we just need to be thinking about when we see how the media reports on crime. Well, that's um, let's move to something lighter. No more murder. No more murder. Okay. Um, Sexual harassment. Let's go to that. (laughs) All right. So... Sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, sexual assault, um, and people in power, um, Patrick Brown, Kent Hare, I mean... Rick Dykstra. Dykstra? Dykstra? I mean, we can can go on naming names, but it was sort of a week in uh, Canadian politics when from, you know... Green Party and Elizabeth May using bad language with her staff to the NDP, um, Aaron Weir. I mean, some allegations of some sort of harassment you know, of a non-sexual nature of some kind to the Conservative Party in Nova Scotia, to the Conservative Party in Ontario, uh, and all the way up to Parliament Hill with the Conservatives 
I mean, it's something that you weren't able to escape and, um, you know, something that, as we said, I talked about a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's just really interesting how, um, how you know, when the dominoes start to fall <laughs> and when people start to feel that they can come forward with these kinds of allegations, because a lot of these allegations are from quite a while ago. Um, and, you know, the power dynamics being what they are between, in particular, elected officials and their staff. Um, it's it really is a watershed moment. I mean, to think of a hashtag like Time's Up, it, it feels very appropriate in terms of the Canadian political landscape right now. And I, I would imagine it's the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the really one of the really upsetting things about it is, you know, in the case of Patrick Brown, for example, the oft repeated phrase that it was a um, an open secret, you know, and that um, a lot of people knew or there was innuendo or gossip or whatever it is around these um, a lot of these guys. Um, and of course, when the allegations are made public through the media and in the case of Patrick Brown being, you know, a hundred days out of a provincial election and essentially having little choice, but to resign from his position of leader of, um, the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party, it raises a lot of questions, totally legitimate questions about due process and fairness and, um, this is kind of what you were talking about and what we've been talking about quite a bit. Yeah. And I mean... I think Patrick Brown is the most high-profile example and also the most troubling example. This is a man who was a member of parliament, um, federal conservative, ran for the the leadership of the Ontario Conservative Party, and uh, it was an open secret that he uh, is alleged to have not treated women very properly. And two complainants came forward to CTV and their complaints may not necessarily merit criminal charges. But they could, like, they're, they they're could. more on the line of criminal oh, charges they're totally than on the line. some of the other allegations we've been hearing about. Like, like they are physical, are, sexualized contact that these was These are, you know, an 18-year-old and, a, and, like, a high school student who's 18 and a first-year university student. Um, basically, the allegations are that, um, that Patrick Brown plied them with alcohol. They were either, you know, at establishments that he frequented or in one case, you know, uh, volunteering and working for his team. Um, They got drunk and he either propositioned them, um, exposed himself to them, or, you know, began um, kissing them and touching them. Um, I mean, in fairness, one... uh, when the complainant said, she said, stop, and he stopped and drove her home. So it might necessar- not necessarily rise to criminal conduct, but it is definitely uh, a man taking advantage of young women who he holds a position of power over to do, if not criminal things, completely reprehensible uh, and awful things. If he's not a criminal, um, he's a horrible, horrible person who's unfit to hold any position of power. And so you can see where people have some concern because you're saying some pretty harsh things about him based on allegations that haven't been proved in court and his political career is probably ruined. I mean, even if he were ultimately to be vindicated, I think he would have a hard time making a comeback. He's certainly not going to be the next premier of Ontario. But it's really tricky because, I mean, in particular in politics, I think it's important not to extrapolate this type of discussion too far outside of politics because I think... In other employment contexts and things, there is more that can be done to ensure 
uh, a fair process. But, you know, politics is, you can't imagine more precarious employment than politics, right? You can lose your position on a whim. You can lose your your position because the, the winds of change are in the air and it has nothing to do with you. I mean, we saw that in 2015 with a lot of well-liked, hardworking members of parliament losing their jobs. You know, that's a different thing, of course, than an untrue allegation being made public. But, um, and, and I'm not in any way assuming these are untrue, I'm just saying if they turn out to be untrue. Um, that's kind of like how things roll. And with you know, so many decades and decades of these things going not unknown, but with no consequences or accountability for anyone. You know, there's a course correction happening here and, you know, the people are going to be hurt one way or the other. And it's really unfortunate. But um, I really want to talk to you about your views on the presumption of innocence and what role it plays, if any, in how we deal with, um, you know, how the media reports on these things and, and whether and when consequences should attach. So I wrote about this for um, CBC. Um, I went on The Current, uh, the CBC um, uh, National Morning Show, to talk about this issue. Um, I'll tell you what I said, but first I'll tell you what people responded to what I had to say. Um, I actually have never been called a Nazi more. Um, and it wasn't just like twice or three times. There was a bunch of tweets and a bunch of emails to me calling me a Nazi. Um, people uh, told me, how would you like it if someone accused you of being a pedophile and you lost your job? And then a number of people accused me of sexual misconduct, anonymous Twitter accounts, saying, I guess you have to lose your job now since we've accused you. And um, many criminal defense lawyers uh, had very strenuous objections to my perspective, saying that in all walks of life, at all times, inside and outside of the court, we have to always assume people are innocent until they are proven guilty. I will note that all of those criminal defense lawyers were white, middle-aged males. What do you know? How about that? Um, but that was the response to my, my what I said and what I wrote. And what I said and what I wrote is that we have a charter right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. In the charter, though, that right, uh, the charter makes it explicit that that right applies if you're facing criminal or penal sanctions. The right to a strict presumption of innocence and to insist that you are innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt ends at the courtroom door. And it doesn't apply in politics and it doesn't apply in other fields. And that to insist on that strict presumption is really to turn down a path of complicity to, uh, to a very important social movement that's happening. Um, the Me Too movement, where we see a number of, and they have, you know, to a large extent been, um, if not exclusively, white, powerful males held to account for either criminal or, um, you know, gross misdeeds. Um, so my argument was that what happened to Patrick Brown um, was completely appropriate. It's completely appropriate to believe accounts. Um, and it's we have to give society enough credit to take into account the specific context and factual situation. Um, in the Patrick Brown case, these weren't, and really in most of these cases, these weren't sort of anonymous accounts delivered under the door in the middle of the night and, and just rumors and gossip or delivered through anonymous Twitter accounts. These were real live people who met with journalists or in Ken Hare's case, um, went public with the allegations. Um, 
they were there was some standard of rigor applied to it through the media who are um, very concerned with libel and defamation laws when you're looking at national media. Um, these complainants, there was two of them. They gave detailed accounts. They provided both uh, text messages and pictures to corroborate some of their story. And there isn't any immediate reason to disbelieve them. And if your daughter or your neighbor or your spouse came to you with such an allegation, uh, you wouldn't as these white male middle-class defense lawyers in Toronto want you to do, throw up your hands and say, I'm sorry, I, you know, I hear you, but you need to, I need to reserve judgment until there's a fair and transparent process. And I'm not going to presume anyone's guilty of anything. If a police officer was accused of um, stealing evidence or of um, uh, abusing someone in the line of duty, you wouldn't let that police officer stay on the front lines until a tribunal hearing. If a teacher was accused of multiple students of sexual assault, you wouldn't feel comfortable as a parent sending your kid into that teacher's class saying he's presumed innocent until, until otherwise. We don't apply the presumption of innocence or proof beyond reasonable doubt to any other aspect of our life. And to insist that it's done so in these cases really, I think, misses uh, the point of this movement and, you know, as uh, you're, you fall into the camp of Conrad Black, who, you know, wrote an op-ed this weekend, who basically excused this alleged behavior. Even if you assume it's true, he excused it. And so, I mean, that's sort of what you're being complicit in doing. Um, and so I think it's completely appropriate. And no one who has called me a Nazi, no one who has criticized me on Twitter, no one who has disagreed with me has been able to suggest in Patrick Brown's case or, or in any of the other cases what should have happened? Should Patrick Brown have been allowed to keep his job, not allowed to step down, his caucus not allowed to remove him? Should the media have been muzzled until there was some sort of tribunal hearing so they couldn't report on it? Should the women have been forced to attend some sort of tribunal to either be cross-examined? And if not, are we going to have a tribunal hearing where their anonymous hearsay can be... Can be um, tender to some sort of evidence, so we have to go through that process. I think that to insist on sort of that standard is to set up a bit of a straw man. And that's the other thing that I saw a lot. I saw people saying, well, what if someone that you knew was a known liar came up to you and made some outlandish allegation of Napoleon traveling through time and sexually assaulting them? Well, I mean, that's not an apt comparison. That's a straw man. And I think that we're all sensible enough to recognize the contact and individual facts of every case and to make sure that that we don't miss this opportunity to clean up what really has been a bit of a swamp. Yeah, and there's, there's just a couple things. Um, first of all, there's the very important distinction between an anonymous complaint on the one hand and a confidential complaint on the other because many people have attempted to trivialize uh, the particular context in which in particular, the allegations against Patrick Brown um, have arisen by saying these are just anonymous complaints. They're not anonymous. The, the names of the complainants are not known to us. They haven't been publicly disclosed, but they are known to the people who received the allegations, i.e. Glenn McGregor and his colleagues at um, CTV. And um, so I think that's one really important thing because it's true. You would, you know, maybe apply a different standard to, uh, you know, three sentence complaint 
submitted anonymously, you know, under the newsroom door than you do with two people in front of you whose credibility you can assess um, by asking them questions. And, and again, there was some corroboration. So that's one thing is this kind of, these are just anonymous complaints. They're not anonymous, they're, they're confidential. So that's an important distinction. And frankly, um, you know, the woman uh, who came out and made her allegation on social media against Kent Hare has had death threats leveled against her. So you can understand why people maybe prefer to have their identities remain confidential. I think another really important point, though, is that the whole underlying justification for the presumption of innocence and for its constitutional entrenchment in the Charter has to do with the massive, massive power imbalance between the two parties to criminal litigation. That is the individual, on the one hand, the accused, and the state. And the state, with all of its resources and all of its tools and all of its power, is seeking to potentially deprive a person of their liberty. A power imbalance like that requires um, the benefit of the doubt to go to the accused and requires really rigorous procedural protections to govern every stage of the process. I think we can agree to that. When we're talking about allegations that are not where the two party, where one of the two parties is not the state, i.e., the the accused and the accuser, in, and and the power balance is reversed. Exactly. If anything, the power imbalance favors the person being accused in many of these cases, and not the complainant. So that is a huge difference. Why? Why should we give the benefit of the doubt to the person being accused rather than the other person, right? Rather than the complainant. Why can't the benefit of the doubt, at least initially, go to the complainant, given that in most cases, that's the person who is the more vulnerable, not just because of the allegations, but because in these cases, because of the circumstances in which th these issues arose, like a, you know, a young staffer or campaign volunteer on the one hand, and a powerful elected official. I think Patrick Brown was a city councillor when some of the first allegations um, came out. But th the point is that to the extent that there is a power imbalance, it, it's really going in the other direction. Or even if you wanted to just, you know, throw that all the window and say it's equal, why should like that? Th this is the part that I don't get. Like you, you, you have to at least initially go with one or the other if you're going to report on it. And so, I, I just don't see a reason why outside of this really particular context of the state seeking to deprive an individual of his liberty. And I mean, that's why we have such a challenge in finding ways for our justice system to better accommodate the needs of survivors of sexual assault is because of that very particular power dynamic that's really happening between a criminal trial is not the complainant against the accused. It's the state against the accused. And that's like a really, really important contextual difference. And it, what I have a problem with is people who invoke the presumption of innocence all over the place it really risks undermining that really fundamental principle. I think you're right. I think that there, and this is, I think, something that defense lawyers miss as well, because, look, I've represented people who I truly believe are innocent of, of sexually-based offenses, and juries have found them not guilty, in some cases, very, very quickly. And I've seen, and so I believe that there are false allegations. Um, I've also seen the tremendous damage that an allegation can do. Um, some of those same people who I represented, who I believed weren't guilty, who um, were acquitted very quickly by a, by a jury of their peers, um, 
I saw them lose their jobs. I saw them, you know, lose uh, custody of their kids, um, you know, have their family relationships damaged. Um, like, I, I know the damage that, that can happen there. But I think there's a real risk of crying wolf here. Of If you invoke the presumption of innocence in all of these occasions, I think it does risk undercutting it in courts. Because what we tell the juries is, when you make this decision in court, the presumption of innocence, it is unlike any other decision that you've ever made in your life. Mm -hmm. Um, It should be harder than any decision you've ever made in your life. And I think that when we start to say that people like Patrick Brown need to be presumed innocent and keep his job or, um, you know, I mean, I think that that actually does risk, uh, risk some of those very fundamental protections that we should guard in court and I think are under attack in court uh, to some extent. And I also think that part of the other sort of fallacy that's relied on by a lot of these uh, people who are defending Brown or, or saying that he should be uh, dealt with differently uh, is saying that like he doesn't have an opportunity to speak out. He can't respond to it. He needs a hearing to do so. And I mean, I think that that is, again, another sort of fallacious argument because I can't think of anyone who is more able to speak out, who has a platform to speak out and can respond to the allegations outside of court if he wants to. I reckon that any national news organization would be falling all over themselves to air a, you know, an hour long interview with Patrick Brown. So these aren't people without voice. These aren't people without power. Um, these are people who still have their jobs as members of parliament. Um, and I don't think that these are people who can hide behind a presumption of innocence outside of court to continue in the positions of power that they are. I think it's too important than that. Yeah. And that's not to say by any means that we would suggest that people, our dog is really mad about this right now. He's, He's growling. with us. He does not care yeah. for this attempt to erode the presumption of innocence. No, but what I wanted to say is, just to be totally clear, because it may not have been fully conveyed by us up until now, it's not to say that we think people should be summarily dismissed from their jobs on the basis of an allegation alone, right? It's not that we don't believe in due process of law um, outside of the criminal court context. Of course not. In the case of Patrick Brown, it's just a political reality. Like, he, like his party does not want to go into an election where they think they have a good chance of winning with someone who's marred by allegations of sexual assault. I mean, that's a reasonable call for them to make. I don't see how politically they could have made any other call than that. Now, when you talked before about, you know, a teacher that gets accused or a police officer that gets accused, we're not saying that on the basis of the allegation that teacher should permanently lose their job. Um, you know, these are unionized professions where where there are... It's a good argument for unionization and, great, and collective bargaining. Yeah, that's right. Because, I mean, there is a process in place. It usually involves a period of paid leave in many cases so that a proper investigation can unfold. Unfortunately, in the case of Patrick Brown, there's no real um, interim pause that can be, you know, that he can press. Like he, he can't be the leader right now. It's just the reality. And um, there will be a process that unfolds. I have every confidence that he's called an election. Yeah. Well, there's that too. But I mean, outside of that, if he wants to clear his name, he will find a way if, if his name is clearable. <laughs> um, so I just, I mean, I just want to be clear to say, it's not that we, we don't think that the most fair possible process um, should 
should be put in place. Like, of course it should. And in the employment context, for sure, people should not be losing their jobs, summarily fired on the basis of an allegation. No, but I think we have to also recognize that context matters. And we're not saying that you're accused of shoplifting or impaired driving, that you should, you know, be suspended or go through a process. I mean, you have to look at things in its context. If you're working at the Royal Canadian Mint in charge of, you know, minting valuable coins and you're charged with an unrelated massive theft and fraud, well, maybe you should be suspended while things go forward. Um, But I mean, I think it does underscore that there's the need for the process to protect, you know, workers. Um, But we can also all look at context and no one's going to say that these types of allegations leveled at someone who's around kids, um, you know, that we should just press pause and insist that things be proven beyond a reasonable doubt before any actions taken. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it is totally ridiculous. Um, Having said that, this is going to be a really tricky time going forward because Patrick Brown having crashed and burned as fast that he, that he did, there are really awful operatives in politics. And, you know, I hope that the media is going to be really doing its due diligence as I expect they will, because I have no reason to think otherwise when more and more of these complaints um, start to come out. And I think again, the real special case of Patrick Brown with the election being so close is such that, you know, you look at the federal liberals, they have two, at least, um, members of parliament who are subject to some kind of allegations, and they have a process in place. You know, Kent Hare's not in cabinet at the moment, the other one's not even in caucus, I don't think, Um, and there is an investigation taking place, and it is possible that at the end of that investigation, it will be concluded that these people should return to their positions, or that they shouldn't, and it's, you know, too bad, so sad, a little bit, that you had to deal with the negativity around that in the interim. Um, because otherwise it's too bad, so sad for the complainant. And why should it be preferred that way? I just... And I think that the way that we overcome a lot of these problems is the ability to have sort of a nuanced, sort of case-specific conversation taking into account the specific facts of every allegation and every circumstance and have that conversation as a society. And I think that um, a really bad way to set that conversation up for success and reasonableness is a dogmatic ad- adherence to um, to you know past precedent, to history, to you know people in position of power, and to the strict application of constitutional rights where they sh- have no place being strictly applied. No, and also I would also just point out that um, you know this we need these sorts of issues to be aired publicly in order for the type of culture change to happen that's clearly needed. I mean, there seems to be a pretty widespread consensus that there's a real problem in politics with sexual harassment in particular. And if people don't feel like there's going to be a consequence or accountability, it's going to be business as usual. And so this is a really important moment because I think, you know, when I hear people saying, well, no, you know, men aren't going to know what they can do. You know what? Err on the side of don't touch people without their consent don't say things about their bodies. You know, it's not actually that hard. And if you think there's a gray area, just stay on the other side of the line of where that gray area starts and you'll be just fine. Yeah, and I think that's something that we need to guard against. I mean, Andrew Shear, the leader of the Conservatives, was asked about, you know, how he makes sure that he doesn't stay, keeps out of these situations. And his response was, well, nothing good happens in Ottawa after 8 o'clock. And I think we have to be really careful about responses like that because lots of good 
happens in Ottawa after 8 o'clock. And lots and, of sexual harassment happens before 8 o'clock. Yeah. And if you're a woman um, in Ottawa um, or a man in Ottawa, you shouldn't have to not go out at night because, you know, you're worried about it. We should hold people who don't do bad, do, do bad things, whether it's after 8 o'clock or before 8 o'clock, to account and do it quickly. Agreed. Um, before we move on to the last ranty topic that I want to talk about, um, why don't you let us know what uh, Iman Publishing is saying? I think I will. Thank you for the opportunity. This episode is sponsored by Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series, which features practical texts covering various areas of criminal practice. The newest texts in the series tackle the challenges surrounding sexual offenses, digital evidence, and fraud. Each of these titles features an author team comprised of both Crown and Defence Counsel to lend balance and comprehensiveness to the series. And I just want to point out that uh, Iman Publishing was good enough to send me the digital evidence text, and it was very, very helpful in preparing for my advanced criminal evidence course this semester. So thank you, Iman Publishing, and thank you to the authors of the digital evidence book. For our listeners, Iman is offering 10% off titles in the series. Just visit iman.ca slash cls and enter code DOCKET10 at checkout. All right, last ranty topic. I'm going to set it up. It's a municipal issue, so maybe it's going to be in your new wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. For the last 10 years, police forces across Ontario, across Canada, across North America have been going carding crazy. And carding, of course, is the process of stopping individuals, normally uh, individuals from marginalized or racialized communities for no reason, and asking them for their identification, their name, their contact information, and then storing that information to build a database. In Ottawa, over the last number of years, there has been tens of thousands of what the Ottawa police call street checks. Um, We're talking about 50,000 over the course of a few years of these sort of groundless, suspicionless encounters. And so the Ontario government took some action against what was a blatantly discriminatory and racist policy um, that was being implemented by the police. And what Ontario said was, look, unless you're acting under statutory authority and the person has to give you identification like in a traffic stop, for example, or unless you're investigating a specific crime or unless you have a suspicion that a crime has occurred or will occur, if you engage in these sort of random, you know, stops for no reason, you have to do a few things. You have to tell the person that they don't have to talk to you because you don't suspect them of anything or have any grounds to arrest or detain them. And you have to report back to uh, to headquarters and let them know that this has happened and the race of the individual that you stopped so there can be some accountability and so those regulations went into force last year and we've received the first report from the ottawa police who says that they've gone from tens of thousands of carding incidents a year to seven so seven times yeah which seems pretty shocking and um I did some interviews. I've spoken out about this. I think it is not only shocking, I think it's incorrect. And why do you think it's incorrect? Because systemic behavior in a police force doesn't change overnight. 
We know that we do have systemic issues in Ottawa and across the country. We know in Ottawa that um, from the uh, traffic and race study that police officers were pulling over minorities at a higher rate for no reason. We know from studies done on marijuana arrests that members of racialized and marginalized communities are arrested more for marijuana offenses, even though uh, on a proportional basis they don't commit those offenses more. And we know that carding for decades was employed against um, racialized and marginalized groups more. But all of a sudden, because of one regulation, it has stopped completely. So do you have concerns that part of the issue here is how the police interpret um, the sort of exception that they suspect that someone is involved in criminal activity or may become involved in criminal activity? Because if I understand correctly, the requirement to report is not triggered, i.e. it's not considered to be carding if you have such suspicion. So do we know, has the Ottawa police released any kind of policy guidance that they've given to their, (laughs) you're making a funny face, to their officers that would um, help them to properly understand the line between an investigative detention or a um, effort to identify someone that you suspect to be involved in crime, which, like, what does that mean? Does that mean you think they associate with criminals? Does that The mean- positioning of your eyebrows <laughs> seems to suggest that you may already know the answer to that question. Um, no, they haven't released any information, or they haven't released any numbers about how many people they stopped fell under these exceptions and how many people that they stopped under these exceptions actually were committing a crime or were arrested for something. So, I mean, the broad exceptions in the regulations say that they can, they don't have to report people that they stop in cars. And we know that that's a problem from the traffic and race study. And so it could be that carding has moved from something that happens on the street to something that happens on the road. The other uh, possibility is that the regulation is overly broad in saying, and overly broadly interpreted by the police, in uh, that exception that says if you suspect a crime has or will occur, you don't need to report the the incident. That and, seems like a real shortcoming in the regulation. And we don't know how many times that exception was used. Exactly, because maybe it was used 49,995 times, and then the other five times were reported as curting. And if we know that that exception was used, for example, 10,000 times, and it resulted in 100 arrests, then you know that there might be a problem there. Mm-hmm. Um, the other option is that you know police are still doing it and just not reporting it. And anecdotally... I mean, I've heard from more than seven clients about times that they were stopped um, or feelings that they had that they were stopped for no reason. Um, And so that's worrying um, because we don't have enough data to actually do any sort of meaningful analysis. But I think what's more worrying is what the police are doing with those numbers because the police are now linking um, the lack of carding that they're doing with a month of increased gun violence in Ottawa. In Ottawa, over the last month, we've had a dozen shootings, um, and that's not necessarily people being shot, although that has happened, but just guns being discharged. And uh, that's a small cluster um, that definitely represents an increase in shootings. Um, And it's still worrying. People are entitled to want to ask questions about that and to seek answers from the police about what are they doing and, and everything else. And it may be 
a small sample size issue where this is something that's like a, a peak right now, but you know we won't have any shootings for the next like three months and it all evens out. So it might just be sort of a, a statistical anomaly. Um, could be a trend as well. We don't know. But um, the police are saying because we haven't been carding people, um, because we're not allowed to do that anymore, because civil liberties are so important, that's why there's this increase in shootings. And that is the most disingenuous, oppressive, totalitarian logic that I've ever heard. And this is the, the head of the police union that's made these statements, right? The head of the police union made those statements directly, and the chief of police um, more softly said there could be many reasons that could be one of them. Yeah, and I mean, it could be. It could be a bazillion of other things. I mean, it's speculative, and I think it's it's really, really problematic. And then, of course, all of this this is happening in the same breath that they're looking for more money for the for the police force, right? So, um, but when you you know do have uh, I, I I'm going to use the word a crisis like this because I think people perceive it to be a crisis, and it may or may not be a crisis. We don't know. Like you said, it could be a trend. It may not be. Um, they want to feel like something's being done about it, and to try to leverage the public's anxiety over the issue to try to undermine the carding regulations, which if they have problems, that ain't it. Like they have problems, but probably in the other direction. It's just, it's really, I just find it kind of disturbing. Well, and I think that there's three main problems with the police employing the logic that they have. The first is in 2014 and 15, um, in Ottawa, the media called it, you know, the year of the gun, where we had more shootings those years than we had in the years that came before and more than last year as well. Um, it was a spike in shootings. I think one year, 2014, we had uh, over 60 shootings. Um, and look, this might be laughable if you live in Detroit or Washington or other areas, but it was big numbers for Ottawa. And I think in 2015, there was maybe 50 shootings. Those were years where the police were carting tens of thousands of people a year. And that didn't seem to stop those shootings. So the two don't seem to be linked. You and your logical reasoning. The second issue is this. The regulations don't stop the police from carting anyone. It just means that they have to tell the person about their rights and then report it back to headquarters. And so this isn't a case where the police said, we tried to card, you know, 5,000 people, but they all walked away and didn't tell us anything after we gave them the rights. This is they tried it seven times. But would we know that? Like, is the data, it it includes attempts to card? Okay. And so if it was actually such an important investigative tool that made a difference, you think they would be trying more rather than using it after the fact and crying foul about it. And the third point is this. If it is the police's forces, uh, police's forces, police forces position that randomly walking up to, let's face it, black guys mm-hmm. for no reason, with no suspicion. Maybe some Middle Eastern guys too. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> randomly. If it's their position that doing that and asking them their names and where they're going and who their friends are is what's going to reduce shootings, um, I think that they've lost the plot and we should just all have our papers on us at all times and unlock our doors and invite them in. Because if random, unconnected, arbitrary actions such as that that are are going to um, actually decrease shootings, 
I mean, I think that we should just believe anything the police tell us and give away all our civil liberties. I don't think as one is connected to the other. And I think actually deploying police resources to, to randomly ask racialized communities um, you know, to stop them and ask them their names, I think that those resources are probably being wasted and relationships with the communities are probably being destroyed. And that actually probably makes things worse. Well, and I just would also think that the police, if they legitimately felt that they had an evidence-based reason to, you know, justify, you know, a change in justice policy in some way, a change in policing resources, that they would see a value to making their case on the basis of actual facts as opposed to, like, hyperbole and rhetoric. Because I think related to this whole discussion, you know, another comment that came from the chief of police recently in this, this same context, so, you know, some shootings was in relation to the bail system and sort of putting it out there publicly that, um, well, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, that are now accused were out on bail or now they're back out on the streets and they're just going to be shooting more people. Well, and this he, is all the, it went again, farther than the that. Ontario government's fault for, you know, loosening the bail rules. He went farther than that. He said, you know, there's been all these shootings. We've made all these arrests. There's this giant project. We arrested 14 people on, you know, gun charges and they're all out on bail and they're all back up to their criminal activities again. Um, so he didn't just say they're potentially out on the street doing things. He said they're back out on the street doing things. And I mean, my response to that was, if you know they're back out in the street doing things, breach them on their bail. They're not yeah. out there with no rules or no regulations on them. Quite often, they're strict house arrest conditions. And if, you, if it's your position that you know they're back out there committing offenses, then arrest them. But you don't know they're back out there doing offenses. You're using this bail system to try to save face with the public. And it doesn't make us any safer. And it just erodes confidence in the justice system. Yeah, and I was asked about that in the course of an interview that I did last week. And I just found it really disturbing because I think a lot of us who follow what's happening with the bail system feel, and we've talked about it before on the podcast, that um, the reforms, to the extent that you can even call them that, don't go very far, that it's very clear there are still lots of people being detained in custody who shouldn't be. There are There is a robust body of law that governs, you know, what a justice of the peace or a judge has to consider when determining whether to grant bail. And the fact that there's a firearm, you know, alleged to be part of the offense is an important consideration. So if these people are getting bail, it's probably because they should be getting bail. And uh, if I totally agree with you that if Chief Bortolo has grounds to believe that they've committed offenses while they've been out on bail, then he should go out and arrest them and have them breached and seek to have them detained in custody. And they will be detained. I guarantee you this. If you get bail on a gun charge and you cross the street in violation of your bail, um, you're not getting out the second time. So, I mean, that got under my skin this week just a little bit. Yeah, and it's you know it's hard enough trying to convince politicians that we need to reform our justice system without having you know we've, we these are like baby steps that have taken place you know regulations around carding um, new crown directive on bail like they don't go nearly as far as many of us would like to see um, reforms to our justice system happening and then when you have them being undercut but in such a rhetorical and hyperbolic way but that people that don't spend a lot of time thinking about these issues, it's very digestible. Like, I mean, if you're, if you're not someone who knows a lot about policing or the justice system and you have the chief of police saying, oh, you know, the province relaxed its bail rules and now people, gangsters with guns are getting released on bail and committing more offenses, that sounds credible. Like, you know, if you, if you don't know. 
And um, so I just think it's it's just a shame, and it's it's a real failure of leadership, I think, on the part of Chief Bordelow in Ottawa. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of the comments are made by the head of the police association, but I think the chief of police, I mean, he's, I tweeted about it, and he sent me some private Twitter messages. Um, and my response to him was, if you disagree, you should disagree publicly. Um, and I know that it's a political thing, and I know that there's differences between City Hall and the chief of police and the rank-and-file officers, um, but you've got to have the the courage to to speak up and have principles and it'd be nice if you know our politicians were able to speak up about this if the mayor was able to speak up about this if the chief of police was able to be able to speak up about this and it's disappointing to see institutions that we give so much power to operate in such an opportunistic and cynical way for their own advantage and when it seems clear and a lot of what's coming out is that people residents in a lot of communities don't feel comfortable going to the police with information that they have because of their own treatment historically and ongoing by the police. And so this doesn't advance that in any way. So, you know, when I understand they're under a lot of pressure, you know, the public wants answers. What are you going to do? There've been a lot of shootings this month. What's your plan? Well, statements like that and going out and saying, we need to bring carding back doesn't exactly send the right type of message to your real potential allies, you know, law-abiding community leaders who, you know, want their communities to be safe, but who don't trust the police enough to share information that they have about some of these perpetrators. Yep. So, um, here we go. Here we go. God, ranty rant. I know, it was a bit of a ranty podcast. Sorry, guys. What are you going to (laughs) do? Well, thanks for listening, and uh, stay tuned for more Good Time episodes of The Docket in the coming weeks. I know. We need to do it a bit more often, because we didn't even hit the story that I wanted to talk about the most. Which one is that? The, come on, the Toronto police officers who busted the the pot shop and then stole the edibles and the evidence, and then on duty ate the edibles, but didn't follow the rule of, if you don't think it's working, don't eat more, just wait. (laughs) And then they ate more, and then they had to call for medical assistance because they got high on duty on the evidence that they stole. And one of them was like up a tree, and another officer who responded to this distress call slipped on some ice and fell and hit his head and had to be hospitalized. I mean, we have to talk talk about about those officers. Well, we also really do have to talk about the Colton Bushy case and and peremptory challenges in the jury. So we'll we'll come back to that. That's enough. This is enough for one day. We should have some sort of like Patreon thing so we can quit our jobs and just do this. Our many many jobs. Good night. Goodbye. <laughs> the end. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song "Uh Oh" as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman and you can follow me on Twitter at M. Spratt. Thanks for listening. You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh. 